And that was the second time I got crabs. And so I thought, uh, this is really a life that calls for another way of living. So I, holy crap, this is, this is it. Uh, what, what are we pointed at? Uh, the land, uh, 21185, I think. Uh, yeah, yeah. Land, uh, 21185. Get it into the spectrum analyzer. Uh, yeah. It, uh, seems to be a repeating signal, uh, 1009 by 1013. Oh my God, Tim. I, I, I can't believe this is happening. I know, right? What, what do you think it's going to say? Um, a, a greeting? Oh, it's got to be something more than that. Maybe a, a new philosophy for nonviolent conflict resolution? A cure for protein entropy? A new kind of art that combines multiple senses. Ah, uh, maybe a warp drive to go visit them. Wait, wait, wait. I think something is coming through. Wait, wait a minute. This is English. Well, land 21185 is only 8.3, 8.3 light years away. What does it say? Um, let's see here. Learn this one simple trick to save 512 glisnecks on your car insurance. <sighs> This is disappointing. And scene. Welcome to the Monty Hall Effect. I'm your host, Tola Martz. And I'm Tim Lloyd. And I am very, very excited because Arrival is a movie that I've, I have had roughly 512 people recommend to me uh, over the last several years. And then they sort of uh, uh, kind of lower, the, lower their opinion of me when they find out I haven't seen it yet. Um, so I, I want to get back in everybody's good graces. I do want to say one thing, though. So we have had a lot of people that tell me that one of the ways they enjoy this podcast is they actually listen to our podcast before watching the movie. And uh, that's fine. But I got to say, if <sighs> I just feel like this movie would be a very, very different experience if you listen to the podcast first. Like, I, I don't want to tell people, I mean, you know, everyone's, you know, they're free to do what they want, but. If ever you're going to wait to listen to this podcast until after you saw the movie, I think Arrival would be really... The only other movie that I could think would be this level of you should not listen to the podcast first would be Sorry to Bother You, right? Would be the other, would be the other movie that just not at all the same experience if you know the main, the main plot beats. There's a... Yeah. Go, go watch the movie. Um, I, I, I rented it uh, for $4 on iTunes yesterday. Uh, you can do the same on your favorite streaming platform for the same price. It's if you're going to listen to this, it's well worth it because we're going to spoil the movie, and and if you have never seen it, uh, don't let us spoil it for you. Go watch it first. Yes, you will experience it differently. You know, this is uh, this whole thing of how you experience a film uh, is related to how you experience a book. And Tolkien said, "You shouldn't read Lord of the Rings until you're an adult." You should go read The Hobbit when you're a kid. You should save Lord of the Rings until you're a grown-up. And, of course, you probably read it when you were a preteen, and I read it when I was a preteen or teen, or started. I kind of gave up in Two Towers for a little while. But uh, 
But like certain books and movies, you know, to experience it right, you have to be sort of in the right head and you have to have the right experience set. Dune would be another book that you probably read at too young of an age that I read at too young of an age. Far too young. Far too young. Yeah, right. Like 90% of the good stuff like went right over your heads. Mm -hmm. Um, So anyhow, you have been warned, dear, dear listener. Uh, Do not blame us. Uh, if you proceed to plow ahead listening to this podcast before watching the movie. Do you want to tee us up on this, Tim? So, uh, if you haven't picked this up already, our movie today is Arrival, uh, which came out in 2016. It was directed by, I'm going to try to pronounce this correctly, Denis Villeneuve, I believe is a French-Canadian, uh, written by Eric Hesseriser, and uh, it is based on a short story by Ted Chang. Uh, it's called The Story of Your Life, uh, which is an excellent short story comes from a really wonderful collection of of short stories and um what else do we say about it uh to get started uh our stars are amy adams uh the star of the film supported by jeremy renner forrest whitaker and a few other folks uh and an amazing soundtrack by johan johansson um and uh that's what we're talking about today nice and and we were discussing the fact that the Icelanders have really cornered the market on mood music, right? Like the way, you know, our parents' generation had like Muzak in the 70s and 80s with like lots of strings and stuff. Uh, if you're going for mood music, there's like, there's a half dozen great Icelandic composers out there and they just own it, man. They just own the market. I don't know what it is. I've been to Iceland a number of times. I'm going to Iceland again this summer. I don't know why they own the market. It seems like the you know, Norwegians and Finns and Swedes could probably do a comparable job, but it's all Icelanders all the way down. It's, uh, yeah, Johan Johansson uh, has, has scored a number of fantastic films. Um, I think uh, several with Denis Villeneuve. Um, I think he did uh, Sicario, which was Villeneuve's one of his, his other big ones. And uh, one of my favorites is uh, Mandy, uh, which is a delightfully unhinged uh, drug-fueled revenge movie starring Nicolas Cage and I think Andrea Riseborough, which I highly, highly recommend um, if you are in the mindset for that sort of thing. You've mentioned that uh, in the podcast. Uh, I'm trying to think the composer who did, I'm looking up Broadchurch, uh, Olafur Arnolds, who is a friend of a friend of mine. Everybody in Iceland knows everybody else. So my Icelandic friend knows Olaf, Olafur. But he's another he's another great Icelandic composer. And you can't, like, it changed Broadchurch. The music behind Broadchurch made it a better show. I don't mm. know, have you, seen, have you seen Broadchurch? I've not seen Broadchurch yet. All right. Well, you should, you should see it. But it's not science fiction, so we won't talk about it today. Okay. Um, so we open this film uh, with a... Uh, Basically, a very, a very brief, but but I thought very, very poignant opening. Uh, it kind of reminded me a little bit of the opening of the Pixar movie Up, uh, where we are we are introduced to a character, our, our main character here. We don't don't learn her name yet, uh, but her name is Louise Banks, uh, and her young daughter. She's she's talking to her daughter and, and describing her life. Um, so we already know that that something is is perhaps amiss, and we see the the entire lifespan of uh, of Dr. Banks's daughter uh, from from her birth to her, her death at a young age, and this is just sort of presented as the setup for the film again, kind of like kind of like an up. Uh, it it sets the stage for for literally everything else in the movie is built on on this particular relationship between the two of them. 
Um, and and there's frolicking and happy scenes, just like that, just like that famous ten minutes in Up. You know, just wonderful scenes of of mom daughter happiness, and then a scene with her daughter in what looks like uh, in a very advanced state of chemo uh, in a bed someplace, as like a teenager, I would say. Mm-hmm. Um, but just very uh, the highest highs and the lowest lows. And then and then she goes to work. And then she goes to work, and um, this is uh, we're then taken to the life of Louise Banks, uh, it, and this is actually somewhat similar to our previous film, uh, Annihilation, where our lead character is a professor. We see her towards the beginning of the movie uh, teaching a class in a in gorgeous case. classroom. I want I uh, would yeah. be a college professor <laughs> or even high school professor if I could have a classroom like that. It's, uh, yeah, it's a. Uh, um, I may have to look up exactly where they Montreal, some technical one. university in Montreal, I believe. Uh, most oh, well. most of the film was filmed in Quebec, so that makes that makes sense. the the entire The entire cast is is basically Quebecois. Uh, so um, her her class, her lecture that she's teaching uh, is is on linguistics, uh, and it's a little bit under attended. She's but you know whatever she's going to go and teach it, uh, and we see. We see what happens as an arrival occurs, right? So this is the the titular arrival of the film. There are there's something that's showing up on Earth, but we don't see it. We don't see it as the audience. What we see is a very slow build of reactions amongst her uh, her students as their phones go off, as they're drawn into their laptops. Everybody's uh, got their laptop finally. open. It's like every professor's worst nightmare about their students. I mean, yeah, that's you know. I'm sure kids these days, right? right. Um, and then, and then a student says, "Can you put the news on, or can you put the television on?" And I have to say, this gave me flashbacks to um, I don't know what you were doing on 9/11, but I was at the dentist and I wasn't paying attention because it was early morning. And my dentist said something about maybe now there'll be a war in the Middle East, and I'm like, "What are you talking about?" And I get out of the dentist office and I go to my car, and there's a message from a friend of mine who's like worried that I'm traveling. And she says, I hope you're okay. And it was this instant realization of, oh my God, something really bad has happened somewhere, but I don't know what it is. And I now have to spend the next 30 seconds, like, and, I, and I'm driving, I'm driving down the freeway and I like putting on NPR and trying to figure out what exactly has happened. And then of course, all the horribleness of 9-11. But, but there's, it's that 30 seconds where you're like, something really huge has happened and everybody else knows about it except me. Yeah. Yeah, and even even uh, the way that this is sort of told through the the medium of film is is that we as the audience are are in that boat with them. Mm-hmm. We, we don't know what's happening. We see, you know, we we see something on the screen. We see the reactions of the people. We see, you know, how how you know what's on the faces of of these people, and we still don't. We go quite a ways into this reveal uh, before we actually see what it is that's happened. Uh, we see, you know, fighter jets flying overhead. We see, you know, people running to their cars and figuring out what to do. Much, much like, uh, like you as you're fiddling with your NPR station and trying to back out of a parking spot. Um, and it's not until actually nine minutes into the film when we f- we first see what it is that has arrived. Uh, and even that, we we see it just as a glimpse on her television set. We don't. It's not. It's not brought front and center. On the screen just yet. Would have been hilarious if they would have been like Godzilla and waited like fifty minutes into the film 
to show you what, what it arrived. Like, really, tease the audience along as long as you possibly can. It would have been a little bit of a different movie. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so what do we see? What, do, what's, what is it that has arrived? It is, I would describe it as if you, if you took an egg and cut it in half long ways and then rounded the edges. Except it's, it's, it's sitting on its edge, uh, on, on the pointy end of the egg, maybe 20 feet off the ground, uh, levitating by, uh, some unknown mechanism. And it's made of some unknown hard material. And it, it's just it, one, just one of the, we don't get a whole lot of, um, visual effects in this movie. Um, and, uh, uh, but what we do get is, is beautiful and it's, and it's, does a wonderful job, I think, of just conveying the alienness of what these visitors are. Uh, you just you just look at this thing, and it's it's doing something that you can't quite understand. Like you said, it's it's just hovering there, twenty feet off the ground. And they explain later, there's you know there's no transmissions coming from it. There's no you know there's no force. There's no motive force underneath it. They say there's um, no waste products, no no energy, no yeah. you know CO two, nothing, no no nothing it coming takes, out of it takes nothing in puts nothing out you can walk underneath it so it's not like it's levitating on some sort of repulsor field or anything like that uh, so very very alien very you know it gives you the sense of this like really advanced something the great great arthur c clark quote any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic right so it is a magic half egg you know uh, and there's and i should say there's a number of them there's 12 of them to be specific and i thought Oh no, 12, somebody's going to go biblical. And of course, that does happen later, but I don't want to get too far ahead. There's 12 of them um, showing up in different places all over the world. No a discernible, what was the weird common fact that they had between the 12? They were all places some fictional character had visited, like just some random, if you had to assign a value to, to what those 12 things were. But it was, yeah, 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 they're trying to figure out what, you know, why. Why 12? Uh, it, it, wasn't, it wasn't a. Uh... Um, a fictional character. It was actually it was cities in which uh, Sheena Easton had had a uh, a hit in a in a specific year of the eighties. Right, it was. right. Okay, that's it's right. It was Sheena Easton. They're just just to show the absurdity of how how do you connect yeah. 12, 12 pieces of information? But yeah, you uh, don't. And spoiler: Sheena Easton does not play a uh, role in the plot beyond that that brief mention. Which is which is a shame. Although I think again. Johan Johansson does a fantastic job with the soundtrack, and I think Sheena Easton might have maybe took taken it in a little different direction. Might have, might have. So these, so these twelve uh, floaty eggs appear all over the world, and that's the that's the piece of news we have. And then uh, Doctor Banks goes back to her house, which is the same house that has been in all of the scenes of her daughter, by the way. So that's for, for whatever that means, she's in the same house that all the events transpired with her daughter. And it's a, I mean, it's a beautiful looking house too. It seems to be on the edge of a lake or, or, um, I guess, yeah, I guess it would have to be a lake kind of given that this was filmed in Quebec. Um, you know, beautiful views, uh, floor to ceiling windows, possibly maybe a little bit nicer than, than what a linguistics professor might afford. I I thought Um, that as well, but you know, (laughs) yeah, we can stretch. Uh, we can stretch reality there, I suppose, uh, because we find out not not long after uh, that 
maybe maybe she's got a little uh, little side hustle uh, doing translations for the United States military, uh, which we learn from uh, Forrest Whitaker. So any any science fiction fan knows that when Forrest Whitaker shows up in your movie, things are about to get weird. So in this case, uh, he is a uh, major, I think. Is he a major? I don't remember. Uh, some some big muckety-muck uh, in some branch of the United States military and reminds her of a, a job that she did for him at some point in the past and did a fantastic job of, of translating. She still has a... Uh, Security, Security clearance. clearance. Yep, the, the right one. Um, and I forget exactly the word that he used, but it, uh, I think it's TSSCI. I think it's a TSSCI. And there's yeah. also he looked yeah. her up, and there's a book that tells you who's got security clearances. And yeah, it's TSSCI, which is a which is a which is a fairly vanilla grade uh, security clearance, honestly. Yeah. but that's okay. Yeah, that's okay. Yeah, yeah. Top secret, secure, compartmentalized information, or something like that. Um, and and I think I I did rag on one of our earlier movies uh, for just sort of using terms related to top secret that didn't actually make any sense. Uh, and, and in this case, this makes sense. Yep. Um, so she's got the clearance. She's got the history. She's apparently the like top translator linguist uh, in one of the top in the world. And he plays her this this recording of. Uh, Apparently, something alien, uh, some unknown, unknown there's potentially a per- language. Well, there's a person talking, and then there's other sounds that so- that do not sound very terrestrial. If you were playing your your speaking spell and you said, you know, the cow says moo, um, this was not a sound that would be on your speaking spell. Exactly. Um, so maybe it's language, maybe it's something else. But he asks, you know, how would you translate this? Which is which is a good question. It's uh right. It's not you know what does this mean? Um, which would assume some sort of like magical translation abilities. Uh, but it's how you know he's interested in in is she the right person to solve his problem? And um, she kind of describes some things and and says she she needs to see see these creatures in person in order to do her job. And you know he thinks, all right, well, whatever. Um, you're just you're just doing this because you want to go and see him. Um, like you're you, you don't really need to go and like be in person to do your job. And you know to to her credit, she, she lets him go. Um, and he says, you know, I'll I'll go and I'll go and check with uh, this other guy over here uh, at some other university, some guy named Danvers. But she says, so this. This was an interesting thing that she says as as he leaves. I totally said, didn't get and, this, by the way. I'm hoping you did. I didn't understand it at all. Yeah. So, so she said, "Ask him what the Sanskrit word for war is." Um, and when, inevitably, as as we know as the audience, because this is a movie about Amy Adams' character and not about this Danvers guy, uh, he comes back, and. Forrest Whitaker says, uh, well, he said he said the Sanskrit word for war translates as argument. Uh, what do you translate it as? And and she says something like, it's a desire for more cows. Right. Uh, I also did not quite get this. I guess the other guy um, was supposed to be incompetent? I don't know. I think I think it's, uh, yeah. Or I, search knowing... deeper, search for deeper meaning. I don't know. I, I something like that. I didn't seem yeah. like the kind of thing that a military guy on short notice would be like, oh, okay, well, clearly she is uh, the better philosopher. But I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, um, yeah, we'll fly. We'll fly back in our in our helicopter because they're which are known for speed. Um, right. <laughs> like he's got the one helicopter, I guess. Um, flies back like that night, apparently, 
and says, "All right, we'll we'll take we'll take the take the cow translation instead." And in classic film trope, uh, she says, "I need twenty minutes," and he says, "We go wheels up in ten. Which it's always it's never like, "Okay, sure, take twenty minutes because we got to make sure yeah. you have all your stuff." Nope, nope, yeah. nope, nope. It's like no. Can't no. Don't cancel the mail. Don't you know? Shut off the gas. Uh, don't don't get somebody to come uh, look after you know your your you know your cat or whatever. But no. yeah, nope, nope. Ten minutes. Um, so let's see. So in uh, at this point, we actually finally learn her name uh, as she is introduced as Dr. Louise Banks to our our other hero, uh, Jeremy Renner playing a scientist, a physicist named Ian Donnelly. Uh, so we're 16 minutes into the movie, and we this is the first time we actually hear of our protagonist's name, which, is, which I thought was kind of interesting. And, you know, we meet Jeremy Renner. Uh, he's physicist guy in glasses. Um, they kind of chat a little bit about what, what they're doing here. And the helicopter takes them to a, what I assume is a forward operating base in... Montana. Very forward operating base. I thought to myself, would they really be flying helicopters that close to a, an alien object? I just, I feel like you'd fly to like a couple miles away and then you would take, you know, ground transportation in. I, I just didn't think helicopters being right there. I don't know. I don't know. But yes, it was definitely. And, and again, like our previous movie, uh, Annihilation, you've got a forward base really close to the action, like very, very close to the action. But uh, okay, fine. Yeah, it's a cool base. Yeah, it's 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 a it's a cool base, and it, it is kind of a kind of a trope at this point. I think. Um, yeah, like we saw it in Annihilation. Uh, if you've seen the Marvel TV show WandaVision, there's a very similar kind of setup. Um, I tried to think of other. other uh, they films did it in Thor. A thing. Right, they did it in Thor, Thor yep. right around the around yep. Mjolnir. Mm-hmm. Oh well. Um, yeah. So one of the the kind of things that that I found. I couldn't quite tell if this was realistic uh, in the sense of, like, here's how the military would respond to something like this um, or sort of uh, accelerated for the purpose of the film. It's just the timeline of this whole thing. Uh, We basically go from these things arrive, uh, somebody sets up, you know, their forward operating base in Montana, they go and, you know, grab a physicist and a linguist and throw them into the ufo uh in what seems like the course of of maybe a couple of hours well actually actually i love this because no it took it took longer than that because she is the second head at least if if at least the second head maybe something later than the second of this department she's replacing somebody else who didn't do a good job right okay okay. whose fate is left a little uncertain she they get to the base and there are people who are being triaged out and they look like they're in bad shape they're sort of all wrapped up and it's not clear exactly what happened to them but something bad happened to them and and he says forrest whitaker says uh she'll be taking over from doctor whomever was it was the predecessor Mm. i actually really liked this about the movie there's a lot of stuff that they knew that we don't have to watch happening, uh, discovering for the first time, right? She mm-hmm. and Jeremy Renner get to walk in, and certain basic aspects of the mission have already been figured out. You know, so often the hero of the movie is the first person to encounter the the alien, right? And they figure all of it, every single bit of it, from the first, uh, you know, for the first inkling of what's going on. And that's not the case here. Like uh, my sense was that. 
I don't know, 24 hours, 48 hours, something like that had passed by. The teams were all in place, uh, but the previous people that had been in charge couldn't hack it. Yeah, and they and and you're right. They you know they've already set up a communications network with the other eleven sites, uh, where we can you know they're they're talking with all of the other scientists uh, at at each of the other sites uh, all around the world. Um, they do sort of speed through, and 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 again, maybe this is you know just a choice to you know not bother the audience with uh, just watching all this stuff happen. Um, just a, a very sort of brief set of scenes of, you know, get shot up with antibiotics, some vaccinations, um, and basically getting thrown into an exposure suit and told, okay, we're going in. Yeah, yeah. The only part of that that I didn't like was they said some, uh, she said something like, well, what do the aliens look like? And the, you know, G.I. Joe guy said, you know, you'll find out soon enough. Like, hey, wait a minute. Like, you and I know astronauts, and we know that the prime characteristic of astronauts is training, training, and more training. The human response to situations, you want to make as much muscle memory and process memory as you possibly can so that people can use the higher part of their brain to make smart decisions, right? If your brain is busy uh, having a super primal reptile brain reaction to the thing you're seeing in front of you, you can't make good executive decisions right and so you just train out all the automatic stuff with people and so this idea that you would intentionally keep information from the team that was going in seemed dumb to me it was one of the few dumb decisions yeah. in the film yeah there's no there's no brief there's no like you know here's what we know already there's no, no. like and there's no even like here's how you use this exposure suit no nope. uh, nope. here's how you you know it's like are you claustrophobic all right get in this thing and, and an alarm goes off and they're 15 minutes we're 15 minutes out it was kind of there were bits of this film that reminded me of close encounters and then there were other bits that didn't and, and the thing i loved about close encounters was the entire dark side of the moon team the team that's on the north side of uh devil's tower like you could tell everybody was trained out the wazoo right everybody knew what their roles were and they were doing it and so when there were things like that here that didn't that weren't that way it, it did it i don't know on the other hand they didn't have a lot of time to stand these teams up right certainly yeah and, and you do you do get the sense um and you kind of pick this up a little bit later on in the movie that that even though this is a collaborative effort with the other 11 sites uh there there is a bit of a race aspect to it uh and that you know we need to be the first, right? The United States needs to be the first in order to to, to finish this this translation. One of the things I liked is they kept the internal U.S. government stuff almost entirely off off screen, right? You got the sense Forrest Whitaker was talking to his bosses all the time. You got the sense that the CIA guy, played by an almost unrecognizable Michael Stahlberg, right? Very very different role for Michael Stahlberg. Uh, oh. Uh, were were constantly dealing with their higher ups in DC, but we didn't have to worry about any of that, right? We didn't have to worry about anybody having to explain to a dumb president who doesn't understand science what's going on, any of that kind of stuff. Everybody who was there was smart, uh, was there because they were smart. Uh, it wouldn't surprise me if Forrest Whitaker's character had an advanced scientific degree. Like they all, everybody was the the right people in the room, and we didn't have to deal with you know dummy vice presidents who. Uh, you know, couldn't be bothered to learn the basics of the problem the way we have in, uh, oh, I don't know, your typical, uh, oh, what's the guy who did the day after tomorrow? 
Um, oh, um, and yeah, uh, Roland, Roland Emmerich. Emmerich. Yeah, Roland, Roland Emmerich. Emmerich. Right. Yeah. Where he, you always have dumb politicians who have to be, you know, yeah. chastised for their lack of scientific acumen. Anyhow, and that's and that's certainly one of the the things that makes this movie I think so good is that is that it does focus in right almost almost everything is is focused on Amy Adams, Jeremy Renner, like in sort of like. Uh, in hierarchical order, it's, it's it's about Amy Adams, it's about Amy Adams and Jeremy Renner. It's a little bit about Forrest Whitaker, and then like a couple few things here and there, everybody else. Yep. Um, and it's you don't you don't need to see what else is going on uh, elsewhere, uh, other than the, the bits that were given. We have this uh, you know this forward operating base. We have all this you know technology and whatever else, and and like more helicopters than anyone could ever possibly need. Uh, and the way that we. Uh, get into the ufo uh however is we uh we ride in a pickup truck to a scissor lift that's sitting out in the middle of a, a, a cornfield or something <laughs> an, like an that. amazing scissor lift when the scissor lift starts off tracy and i are like how tall is this scissor lift <laughs> like it just the scissor lift goes on and on it and just, on it just keeps going yeah but anyway. and it, yeah and you know and the thing looks you know yeah it's it's maybe 20 feet off the ground uh so just like climbing this thing and and that, I mean, that's another thing where you get the sense of like you know how 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 little time has the the you know the military had to respond to this uh just long enough to figure out that they need you know a scissor lift with maybe 30 feet of of extension and right. that's going to do the trick somebody went to the home depot in bozeman montana and picked up a scissor lift and and drove it on a flatbed out to this site. So uh, so we take our scissor lift and, and as we're going up, we sort of get get to hear you know how the whole process works and it's every you know uh, what eighteen hours I think something like that. Um, there's a, a portal that opens up in the base of the UFO here, and then they go inside. And I think they mentioned a few things about, you know, there's, there's oxygen in there and, um, it seems, you know, seems breathable, although everybody stays in their, in their exposure suits, uh, breathing their own oxygen. Uh, and they do, uh, actually bring a canary with them, um, as backup to the backup of, of the exposure suits, um, which is also kind of a nice touch, I thought. The proverbial canary in a coal mine. Yes. Only in this case, the coal mine is is floating above the ground. Right. So so um, so there's a long thing that can be distilled down to the idea that there's a change in gravity vector as you go up inside this thing. So you're going up on a scissor lift, and uh, and it's and it's cool and everything. But I mean, for the sake of of discussion of the plot, uh, it turns ninety degrees, and so as you're going up inside this thing, what what had been what had felt like an elevator tunnel or an elevator uh, tube uh, turns 90 degrees and then you are in a long hallway. You can look back, you can see the ground back w- what looks behind you, but it's actually below you. And, okay, So the aliens can't control gravity. And, right, yeah. which, which fits with the, the whole like floating uh, untouched above the, the surface of, of the Earth thing. Uh, it all, it all kind of hangs together. You don't see like, like you see these things that are unexplained um, but they don't they all kind of fit together. They all kind of make sense within a given framework. So we meet our aliens uh, at long last. And I, again, this is like, you know, the, the couple of things that we get to see visual effects of in this movie uh, are, are pretty much the, the UFO and then the aliens them, themselves. And then in, in a little while here, we'll, we'll see how they write. 
and it's you know it's one of these things where like as you watch any court sort of sci-fi movie you have to ask yourself like how alien are your aliens you know do you go the star trek approach and just make them just like people with like nose ridges uh or are they you know as sort of unknowable as as completely different from most of the things that we're used to seeing uh, as possible. Right. Solaris being maybe the extreme example, uh, an object that's a planetary sized ocean, living ocean. Um, that would be one end of the spectrum. Um, these guys are more about, you know, maybe a two or a three, like Cthulhu, uh, I would say, a small version <laughs> of Cthulhu, like still uh, solid organic matter, still propel themselves probably naturally through some sort of mechanical process that we understand. We find out later they can be injured, right? Mm-hmm. So they're, yeah, right. they're, they they're organic yeah. uh, like us, but boy, they're not based on any, they're septopods is what they're called because they're uh, heptopods. heptopods. Heptop- I'm sorry, heptopods, mm-hmm. which is seven, right? Seven symmetry. Mm-hmm. Yep. Mm-hmm. So they're seven sided symmetric like a octopus, except minus one. Yeah, Octopus Minus One, um, which is a great band name. And it's interesting, too, to sort of compare the, like, there's seven limbs, but there's 12 craft that come to Earth. So you have to, like, you know, wonder if there's some sort of, you know, weird, like, base 12 thing somewhere in their history, kind of like it is in ours with, you know, going back to the Babylonians or whoever. Um, Or maybe they're just doing that because we like 12s here on Earth. Right. Because of the Bible, Tim. Yeah, exactly. Um, so let's see here. So we meet the aliens. Um, we uh, our our scientists have their first meeting. They they leave uh, their their first little encounter. Uh, Jeremy Renner uh, barfs in a trash can, and I think this is this is the point where um, you know on the on the second viewing of this movie. Um, and I guess we should say here that I've, I've seen this at least twice, um, second time, um, just, just yesterday. Uh, you've only seen this once. Correct. Uh, just yep. like this past week. Uh, right? yesterday, as a matter of fact. Yesterday. Fantastic. Um, so in the second viewing, I, I'd like, like this, this scene sort of like right after they come out of this first encounter, um, appeared to me as like, oh, this is, this is the meat cute. This is the, like... You know, we're scientists in this together, and you saw me barf in a trash can, uh, and so like now we're we're destined to be together. Um, did you pick up on that at all? Well, in the it, first viewing, it went from my. It, what it did was it humanized his character. I was worried before that because he was representing science, and she was representing, you know, art for lack of a better word, right? So mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was worried that he might be an antagonist or he might the failure of science might cause him to go mad or something like that. And what happened was when he barfed, I'm like, oh, OK, he's he's an ancillary protagonist. He's not an antagonist or sp- held to be a foil to her, but as a as a potential uh, partner in this activity. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and he's the one who sort of names them. Right. He calls them Abbott and Costello. Right. Um which is, you know, again, a very, like, humanizing thing, uh, right? You Anthropomorphizing. Know, she is, is, yeah. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah, exactly. So let's see. So we uh, we have our meet cute. We um, we break away to a little bit of news reports, uh, just to kind of check in on the larger world briefly, and we see that things are going sideways. There's looting, there's riots, there's religious suicides, sort of, you know, Jonestown-type activities going on. 
Um, so I have to say about a reaction I had during all that. Mm-hmm. Because they show the Chinese uh, strongman general, or however they refer to him. And it's the great Hong Kong actor, Tsima, who is was in my favorite movie of, last, of uh, 2019, The Farewell. And he was amazing in The Farewell. He played the dad of the main character. And he's just, he is a fun actor. He's done a lot of stuff. He's done Dante's Peak and Rush Hour. And, you know, he's just, he's been in a bunch of stuff. But he was incredible. Anybody who hasn't seen The Farewell should, uh, you know, should go see it. Like I said, my favorite movie of 2019. And I thought, oh, wow, they got a good actor for this, like, total knockout like a total throwaway role that we're not going to have anything, see more anything about this guy. Well, no, actually, they they make the most of Tsima, but yeah, 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 he's he's great, and I don't know. I, I think you you probably uh, you've spent a lot of time in China. Um, I this was one thing that sort of took me out of it of the like you know the modern world a little bit um, is that we have this just sort of like general, right? He's right. like he's a general somewhere in in the the Chinese army. Um, and and he appears to have like all of this power. Yeah, um, you are, you are correct. They are confusing Chinese culture with Russian culture. Yeah, the Chinese army generals never take over. It's very different than Russia. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, a little little suspension of disbelief. But you know, if it gets us Tima in the movie, I'm I'm for it. Um. So yeah. So we, so we, you know, this is again the the trope of um. You know, things are going going nuts. Uh, around the planet because people can't deal with like what do these aliens mean why are they here this kind of thing and it's a legitimate question right you do want to know whether your government is figuring it out right if if aliens showed up you and i would say 48 hours later huh i wonder what the government is doing to figure this out i think that you and i would assume that if they were there with hostile intentions they would have just killed us all and they wouldn't send down half eggs that float 20 feet above the ground in 12 locations around the world but but I, I can see. I can see. And especially because we have seen that in the last couple of years, lots of people distrust their government. Lots of people don't believe their government can, you know, open a paper bag. And so, like, uh, yeah, people would be asking questions. And, you know, uh, those questions would get increasingly more, more strident when answers were not presented. And lots of people believe in, you know, conspiracy theories of, you know, all kinds of levels and and details and scope and whatever else um so yeah i think i think yeah nothing it is it is a bit of a movie trope but it, but at the same time it's very certainly very believable and can, can we talk for a second about the fact that like it seems like in the past two months there has been a concerted effort by the military and uh the government to uh suggest that there's a certain amount of data on ufos out there that's kind of getting released piecemeal we're seeing these like logs from uh carrier groups where there's like ufos that are that are there's data right on things that they don't know what it is i mean uh, occam's razor would tell you it's probably drones being flown by somebody but they accelerate really hard and uh it's just very weird because all of a sudden this whole subject of ufos in the past several months seems to have gone from uh fringe theory to something the government's like well you know actually we have some weird data have you have you noticed that yeah I've I've certainly noticed it, yeah, and it's and and yet you have to sort of wonder about like what's the the motivation behind it, um, you know? Is it just like you know they they don't care anymore? They're like people are just going to believe whatever 
bananas thing they're going to believe. So we'll just like tell you what we know, which is like we see some weird stuff every once in a while. They see um, weird stuff and that's often, it. It, it turns out, yeah. right? They're saying that all these Navy pilots are saying like, yeah, we encounter UFOs fairly often and we report it and they write it down and then we go about doing our jobs because they don't interfere with yeah. us. But it's just it's it's very weird to me that I mean, uh, one could argue that. You know, if one if if one were so inclined that this is an attempt to sort of soften, you know, you you trial balloon things that you want to uh, share with people. And uh, again, I don't I don't think that we have any special knowledge about any sort of master thing going on that that isn't being shared because I don't think anything more than three people can can share uh, or can keep a secret. And you know, what's the old saying? If for three people to to keep a secret, two of them have to be dead, or something like that. So, something, I, yeah. I mean, I, I don't, I don't know. I'm just saying it's very interesting to me that all of a sudden there appears to be this sustained narrative of, uh, yeah, we got a bunch of bunch of use, useful information. And it's coming both from um, DoD sources and non DoD sources, which typically the DoD tends to keep their uh, t- tend to keep them their comments to themselves on almost everything all the time, right? Yeah. So anyhow, as just uh, you know, related to this question of what information does the government know and what do they not know? So things are going, things are getting weird outside our camp, and they generally don't spend a lot of time. Like the military does a nice job of keeping this camp secure from the outside world. There's no like, uh, you know, they mentioned some Armageddon cult where people kill themselves someplace, and I thought, oh no, you know, is this gonna be the kind of movie where the Armageddon cult? uh attacks the base and you know it's no it's a it's a it's more insidious uh form of yeah yes um yeah so we'll get we'll get there but i think first we need to um talk about the big break that uh that dr banks has right so she ends up being of you know of all these scientists that have been working on this problem over the past couple of days or whatever um she is the first one to actually try a written language uh to try and communicate with these folks and it immediately turns out um to to be very useful and she she has to sort of explain it uh to 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 forrest whitaker here um and I know his character has a name, but he's Forrest Whitaker, so um, that's what I'm going to call him. Sure. Um, so she has to explain it to him. He, he's like, "What are you doing? Like, why are why are you wasting time with this? Like, you know, you're you're doing you're doing two things when you could be doing one. You're doing a written and and like spoken language." Um, and and she's like, "No, like we need like we need to do this. We need their linguistic reasons to to actually have this kind of communication, and it works. Uh, and in the process of reacting to uh to her she she realizes that like she's trying to communicate who she is and she's like they need to see me and she tears off her exposure suit and the military guys freak out and they're like what do we do what do we do and uh forrest whitaker who of course is not in there with him uh says yeah let's let's see how this plays out so it clearly sort of sets up that you know they're kind of expendable sort of not maybe not really, uh, or or maybe that he trusts them. So by the, this is by, the, by the way, there turns out to be there's a term for when the written and spoken languages don't uh, refer to the same thing, and I couldn't find it in a 15 second search of the internet. But uh, this is this is their language, right? Our language, our written language, approximates our spoken language, right? It's it's a it's a approximation of our spoken language, right? But it is that is not the case with uh with the aliens 
And that that's part of her realization, right? Is uh, she decouples. She doesn't assume that they can make progress on the spoken side of it. So she's going to make progress on the written side of it. And, and voila, as the French say. And the Quebecois say. The, the Quebecois would definitely say that, yeah. Um, so let's see. So we... Uh... We start to have this communication, and as soon as this happens, as soon as, as, as we see on screen this, this two-way communication starting to happen, uh, we get um, Dr. Banks's first vision uh, in this timeline of her kid. And so this is, you know, ever, ever since the opening of the movie, when we were introduced uh, to her daughter, uh, Hannah, um, and saw her life kind of from start to finish, uh, we haven't seen her since. And so that she comes back at this point in what looks like when I first watched this, it looks like a flashback. Mm-hmm. Um, did it read to you as as mm-hmm. a flashback? Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and it you know it uses that movie like that movie you know storytelling thing of like this looks like a flashback, so it must be a flashback. But but there's also some I think for a while un- or intentional ambiguity as to whether she is having memories or whether she's having hallucinations. And later, uh, it appears closer to an active hallucination. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But with, you're right. With it audio, is, it, right? With audio. And it is when she starts deciphering the language, which, by the way, um, are these circles, right? Um, every uh, conveyed piece of communication from the aliens is a circle or combination of circles. And these circles do not have a start, middle, and end. Right there, there isn't. Uh, you don't have a subject, uh, verb, object the way we have in our language, or an object, verb, subject, or whatever. Right? It is a circle that has no beginning and has no end, and contains with it a bunch of ideas. And so they develop this system for analyzing these these icons, and it'll just put up a list of words over by the side, and it isn't. There isn't supposed to be any particular order to the words. They're just all contained within this symbol yeah yeah and it's it's uh it gets, it gets pretty interesting just sort of the way that that you see this this way of communication that is very obviously not not the way that any any human writes or or communicates that we know of um and uh what does she describe it as non-linear orthography um and we get right about this time we actually get this this voiceover um from from jeremy renner um, which I don't know. It kind of it kind of stood out as as feeling a little like like okay, why are we all of a sudden like you know the movie started with a voiceover from Amy Adams. Now why are we getting his kind of kind of voiceover? And he's describing you know what do we know? It's, it's a little bit of a catch up kind of a thing. Um, and uh, he says you know is this um, you know what what do we know? What the what what is uh, Dr. Banks doing? to try and resolve this. And so it's a little bit of like your standard voiceover thing where, where yeah. we sort of like summarize some things so that we can move the plot along. Right. That thing that they do in Blade Runner that everybody hates, but they don't, they don't do it very much in this movie. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and uh, I have to say when I, when I watched this again yesterday, I was a little annoyed. I was like, okay, why is Jeremy Renner just sitting there describing the thing that Louise is doing? Um, but the voiceover leads into this kind of like nice little moment that they have um, where they kind of step away from the, the base. They're kind of sitting up on a, on a ridge somewhere and, you know, just kind of chatting amongst themselves. And, and you see this, like, I mean, it's basically, you know, they're, they start kind of flirting a little bit. 
Um, and, and, and you can see the voiceover is really there to sort of establish in his sort of scientist's mind that he has an interest in her. Interesting. I didn't really take it. I took it as more comfort than, than romantic. I felt like they were both so into their jobs. I felt like they were coming together to comfort each other, but I didn't think of it. I mean, uh, I'm not sure I thought of it as flirting. I didn't think that there was a, I think there, I feel like there was a conscious decision at a specific moment late in the film for her to move to the romantic for specific reasons. Like, I think there it was a conscious shift from of hers to go from comfort to romantic because, uh, because uh, the future of the human race depended on it. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. So uh, we'll, we'll get to that. We'll get to that yeah, moment, we'll get to that. Uh, which is yeah, the crescendo yeah. of the whole film. <laughs> right. Uh, certainly. Yeah. So one of the two crescendos of the whole film. Um, okay. So we have, uh, I guess the other thing that happens right about this time in, in the movie is, is, you know, we talk about, and I think this is a question that Jeremy Renner asks. He says, you know, he's just, he's trying to understand more about like this kind of writing. And he's, you know, it says like, well, it's nonlinear. Like, is that how they think? Um, and so that's like, that's kind of one of the keys to the, to the whole plot here. So this gets at, this led me down a huge rabbit hole yesterday and is continuing to lead me down a rabbit hole today of linguistic relativity and uh, also known as, and they call it the Sapir-Whorf hypothesis, right? And I love that it has the word Whorf in it, by the way. Oh, yeah. Um, no, no relation to uh, uh, Lieutenant Whorf and uh, later Commander Whorf. And this idea that language, uh, that it turns out they have a strong and a weak version, right? Strong version is that language determines thought. Weak version is that linguistic categories and usage influence thought. But um, it's really interesting to me because people tell me that it's real. So I have a friend who um, is uh, born and raised in North Dakota, but learned uh, strong Chinese, did grad school in Chinese, uh, Chinese language, went to China, speaks extremely fluent Chinese. And he swears up and down that he thinks differently in Chinese than he does in English. He finds himself thinking specifically in Chinese and he can shift gears into thinking in English. Um, I don't know. I don't have any friends that are that fluent in a foreign language where, where they're like, where they are native speaker level fluent in multiple languages. But the thing it did make me think about was, oh my gosh, is there any truth to this? And would it mean that people who speak multiple languages would be um, cognitively different than the rest of us? Um, and so it turns out that this linguistic relativity is an extremely contentious issue, right? And people do not agree at all. They seem to all agree that str the strong version where language determines thought is definitely not true. Um, these are things you can test for to some extent, and uh, seems to be there is there is strong agreement that uh, that is not the case. But this weaker version, there seems to be quite a bit of in, quite a bit of evidence that language influences thought and decisions. And I just think it's fascinating to think what if speaking multiple languages, particularly if they're very different, like if you speak German and uh, English. Or if you speak French and Italian or French and Spanish, maybe not. But like if you speak Japanese and English um, at, a, at a native speaker level where you could think in that language too. It just, it got me thinking about all these things. And I have no answers to any of these questions. But boy, did Certainly. it make me think about them. Yeah, yeah. Or if, or if you, uh, you know, are, are fluent in American Sign Language uh, and, and perhaps, you know, another, another sign language, um, you know, right. from from another country or something like right, that. Right, because ASL um, is, a, is structured very differently than English, right? 
It can be. Um, and uh, yeah, this is this is. Um, I'm just sort of. Yeah, I, I also went went down a little bit of a Wikipedia rabbit hole on the Saber Wharf hypothesis. Um, and yeah, there's a lot. Yeah, there's a lot of controversy. There's a lot of like, okay, is this just like you know some some white guy looks at uh, I think Wharf studied I think the Hopi. Um, you know, he looks at like uh, the Hopi language or the Shawnee language and is like, aha, there's 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 some kind of cool thing that these guys are doing um, and completely misses something important. Well, um, the argument is that by talking about the Hopi language in English, right, that you that you screw things up, right? <laughs> by even <laughs> trying to present these concepts in English, you are destroying the thing that you are attempting to examine, right? So I think you and I could definitely uh, make grad school careers out of uh, continuing this debate about linguistic relativity. Like there exactly. clearly seems yeah. to be a lot of juice on this subject currently, mm-hmm. and it makes for a great science fiction story. Um, and uh, having having read some of some of Ted Chiang's other short stories, uh, it certainly fits into kind of his his interesting way of of telling a story, um, which is you know is there some kind of some way of thinking that sort of unlocks an ability that you may have here. Um, so uh, okay, so we're gonna we're gonna get a little bit more into that, but first uh, we have to go back to our um, I guess let's see what 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 year did this movie come out? Twenty sixteen was Rush Rush Limbaugh still uh, on the air? Who was who was the big? He was still right alive wing? at that point. Yeah, yeah. Who, who, who was uh, you know Sean Hannity's up there? Yeah, uh, yeah. You know, there's a bunch. So of we them. don't. So we don't get. Uh, and this movie doesn't do the thing where they bring in like actual on-air like cnn talents to stand in for themselves um you don't see an anderson cooper you don't see a sean hannity um so we get you know the like the by the way i just thought of the person that this person most closely represents in the real alex jones alex jones yes yes so that's who he's closest to yes so our our uh some of our 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 military friends here who are in in the forward operating base and kind of helping these folks out um driving them back and forth to the ufo they're listening to Alex Jones uh, on their laptops in their in their barracks, and uh, well, I guess uh, what they take out of it is um, you know not not too dissimilar from something like the PizzaGate scenario, um, where they decide they need to go and take action. Um, they, they seem to be demonstrating that language language influence thoughts and decisions, <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm, right? Because mm-hmm. this is the 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 soft, uh, the. Uh, the radio guy is is giving it all in terms of you know strength and risk and danger and what are you going to do uh, to keep everybody safe, right? Yeah. And there's also a scene where one of the guys is talking to his wife uh, at home, and the wife is crying and can't. This is earlier an earlier scene, you know, and she doesn't know what to do, and their child is super scared, and you know he can't really say very much other than it's going to be okay, it's going to be okay. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, he's in, he's in this rough position and is, is heavily influenced by this kind of conspiratorial, uh, talk radio, um, YouTube channel basically, uh, that he's watching. And it's not just him. Um, it turns out it's like a bunch of guys, uh, somewhere around what, six or eight of, of, of the, the troops Something here. Like that. Um, and they, you know, it's enough that they can 
kind of sneak some explosives away from their munitions depot or whatever. And uh, when nobody's looking, they go and sneak it out to the to the UFO, uh, hide it in the uh, the this kind of um, chamber that they've set up for them. Because there's all sorts of scientific equipment in there. It's yeah. just more equipment. Although it's yeah. super ominous looking. Like we, the audience, can just tell from the way the stuff looks. It's not scientific equipment. And then there's the giant timer on it counting. Well, you got to put the timer on it so that we can have the countdown. Because right. that's that's how you get that's how, that's how you get the the movie suspense. Uh, but whoops, they uh, they they put the bomb in there and they're coming back down and then they run into oh no, it's Louise Banks. Uh, what's she doing? Why did she decide to come back here now? You shouldn't be here. Um, and both. Uh, both Louise and uh, Donnelly, Jeremy Renner, uh, are uh, have decided they need to come back. Uh, they have more things they want to talk about. And uh, Abbott and Costello are, are aliens. They're they're kind of agitated. And they I thought, actually thumped the glass. One of them yeah. goes thump, thump, thump yeah. on the window. And uh, uh, just watching this the other day, it, it seemed like actually kind of, despite all of the suspense of the bomb about to go off, I thought it was actually kind of a little bit funny. Um, like you're sitting there, like as the audience, like you know that the bomb is there, and it's basically like the aliens sitting there going, like, "Hey, hey, dumbass, look around, look behind you, like tap, 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 turn around." But they have no means of communicating that, right? They're like, just like, look, just go, like I'm pointing, turn around. I mean, they, it's interesting they never make any kind of pictographs uh, that indicate spatial anything, right? Yeah, like oh, you yeah. would think if they have the technology to make these. Ouroboros looking, uh, you know, symbols. They could just make a make a picture of the room with an X, right? Yeah. <laughs> but right. you know, it may be part of their nature that they don't think very very well spatially, right? I mean, who yeah. Knows? Yeah. But they, yeah. there's nothing ever anything spatial except for the fact that they build some of their some of their constructs are built in three dimensional space. But other than that, there doesn't appear to be anything spatial about how they communicate. Right. They make they make no. Uh, right, they make no representational drawings whatsoever. Right, um, you don't you don't get. I mean, right. So like, humanity um, has has sent out like you know these like golden records out into space, um, and uh, was it Voyager one, Voyager two, Pioneer, um, Mariners, right? Um, uh, no, Pioneer. You're right. Not Pioneer. Yeah. Um, right. So we send out these things that are like, you know, at the time they were they were records because that was what we had. Um, but actually printed, right? Those the records contain, you know, information that's actually encoded, and you have to be able to figure out how to decode them. But on the surface of them, like it's a drawing, like it's a drawing yeah. of there's there's a there's a male body, there's a female body, there's a you know a sketch of like here's here's the sun and the distance to the yep. nearest couple pulsars or whatever. They use a visual representation to explain distance and time, and then make reference to those units to show you how far away the planets are from the sun. They show the pictures of the humans are next to the probe themselves to give you an idea how big humans are. They even have, my favorite is, there's a map to the local pulsars. So this is a you are here map. Yeah. And it's and it's my it's always been my favorite answer to the what would you do if aliens abducted you and then they dropped you off and wherever their home world was, how would you get home? How would you tell somebody where you're from? You're like, Oh, I'm from a yellow star. And they're like, Okay, that's like half the stars of the galaxy, so that's like a hundred billion stars. And you're like, Yeah, and there's like uh seven planets. Like, okay, how do you define a planet? Because yeah. 
you know, blah, 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 blah. Anyhow, so there's this map that's got distances to known pulsars, and it's got the periodicity of the pulsars, and you could hypothetically get your way home using that map. Anyhow, long story short is I've often thought about getting that as a tattoo on my back, um, but it's really detailed, and it would be a funny story. It'd be like a great cocktail party story, but I don't know if I'm willing to get a giant tattoo on my back merely to have a cool nerd uh, cocktail party story. You know, different people have different reasons. So, um, if that's if that's how if that's how you want to go, and and also if it gets you back home after being abducted um, by by aliens, uh, maybe it's useful. You know, I'm 52 and I haven't been abducted by aliens yet, and I kind of feel like if I haven't been abducted by aliens yet, I'm probably not going to get abducted by aliens. Which isn't to say I won't get abducted by aliens tomorrow, but I'm just I'm kind of going to go with the odds on this one and not get the giant tattoo on my back. But so anyhow, we all think. Your point, I get, is we all think uh, spatially and temporally, and uh, these guys don't communicate that way at all. So they don't put up a picture of the room with a, a giant axe. They just keep pounding on the window. And then eventually they do something that looks like, I don't know, almost like a squid. You know how squids and octopuses will just jet out a whole giant cloud of, of ink when, when the... When the situation gets really weird and they have to skedaddle, right? Mm-hmm. They'll put out a giant cloud of something, and and they do this, right? Yeah, you're right. And it looks it looks like that from the start. You're like, okay, well, they're just freaking out because this thing's about to explode, and they do, you know, even though maybe they don't have an understanding of time, they still at least understand that this is the point in time when the explosion happens. But it's not just a bunch of ink kind of right. floating around, um, right? Uh, we we see that it it is actually a bunch of their sort of words or sentences or or whatever sort of floating in their in their space. I just have to nerd out on cameras for a second and just point out that the technology when they zoom in on things in that scene and they and they can resolve things at the resolution level that they can. So you and I have a friend named Eric Johansson who does camera work, high end camera work, uh, photography for Nathan Mirvold. Uh, uh, modernist cuisine type projects. And let me just tell you, the technology that it takes to get that resolution across that large of an image with that depth of field, because it turns out that they're taking stereo images and they are able to get uh, essentially uh, infinite depth of field as well as stereo images, is actually not really technically available at this moment. Like if you want to take that kind of an image of a cheeseburger, I'm here to tell you with the best camera technology that exists, it takes like a half hour. That infinite depth of field thing turns out to be really, really difficult. So I just I have to nerd out for a second and say that camera technology that's presented in this movie doesn't actually exist at this moment. It, oh, well. Yeah, it's it's the right it's it's the old like Blade Runner thing of like enhance, enhance, right? Zoom in over here and it, you know, slides around and, and you can see things that you couldn't, you know, possibly pick up on, on film. Right. So there's a little bit, you know, because I've seen how these cameras operate in, in actuality, it's a little tough, but yes. So it turns out it's a cloud of these circular language concepts. And then of course the bomb goes off and they get saved, uh, by Abbott and Costello. They get sort of kicked out of, uh, the, reception room that they're in um and the concussive wave they, the the Costello close a uh for lack of a better word airlock separating uh jeremy renner 
and Amy Adams from the pressure wave because the pressure pressure wave is coming down uh, the hallway and they close it off, presumably taking the blast themselves so that Amy Adams and, and Jeremy Renner don't get killed. Yeah. So let's see. So we get um, at this point, right? There's this is this is a pretty clear uh, act of aggression by the humans uh, on on the heptapod aliens here. And all around the world, we see, um, uh, again, very similar to when they first show up. Um, we know as the audience that the aliens are doing something. But what we see, first of all, is the reactions on people's faces. Uh, so everybody sort of runs outside and you get those sort of like classic movie look of like, oh, my gosh, something is happening in the sky. And everyone is concerned or disappointed or whatever. Uh, and it's that they are it kind of looks like they're leaving. They're like maybe they're about to leave. But they're not leaving. They're just, like, moving a little bit farther away from the surface of the planet. So you can't take a scissor lift up to visit them anymore. Once we have... uh, Once they've done this, um, then it's like, well, okay, uh, now what? Uh, So we have, like like you're describing, we have this video, this amazing uh, three-dimensional video of this communication that they made before they, they kicked all the humans out and... Uh, decided that they didn't want to talk to us anymore. And, and by the way, different forms of freakout are happening around the world in different places, right? Zima's uh, strongman has decided because there's a we, we didn't talk about the fact that the aliens at some point discuss weapons or a word that gets translated as weapon, and everybody freaks out and they think that perhaps the aliens are trying to pit the humans against each other, or they're trying to create a scenario where one of the teams would get a weapon that could be used against the other 11 or whatever. So yeah, everybody dis- everybody disconnects from everybody else. So And that occurs actually before the explosion, right? So there are yeah, various levels yeah. of freakout going on around the entire planet. Right, yeah. Yeah, I think they say something like offer weapon uh, is how it's interpreted. Um, so, so they're trying to, you know, continue to translate this like giant amount of information that they're suddenly given. Um, they're like, well, this is going to take, it's going to take years. Um, it's going to take forever. And, um, she comes up with, uh, you know, Dr. Banks comes up with, with a couple of additional translations. Um, the ones that I wrote down were, um, many become one and there is no time. Um, which, which again, like, like this, this offer weapon, right. If you interpret it literally, if you interpret it with a, um, you know, sort of human language uh, type of, of reasoning, you're like, well, of course, there's no time. That means like, oh, no, they're going to leave or there's, you know, you've got to make your choice now. But perhaps what they're saying is actually something very literal, which is which is that like time, as you understand, it doesn't actually exist um, or, you know, that we, we think of time differently than you like um or you you will learn that time doesn't actually mean what you think it means. Uh, it could be you know all of these different different interpretations of of what they're actually saying. And, and if you thought she was having hallucinations before, <laughs> right? This just escalates the. It, it becomes almost impossible for her to tell what is a waking uh, memory or hallucination if you want to say and what is the quote-unquote real world or what is the current timeline because she's jumping around so much to other to to, uh, other times involving her daughter and eventually this this takes her to the point where she sees how to get back into the ufo she has a vision of 
a basically a little pod that kind of comes out of it. And so we immediately cut to she's escaping sort of from the um, from the base, running out there, uh, and a pod does in fact come down, picks her up, um, takes her into the alien space. So so previously, right, we've we've been seeing the humans come into this this part of the vessel that the has you know the right amount of oxygen and they can breathe and there's no you know no one's gotten sick or or anything like that um and the aliens have been on the other side of a pane of you know glass or transparent aluminum or whatever um in their own kind of environments um and there's some talk earlier in the movie of you know why does it take 18 hours well maybe they have to recycle the air for uh, whatever it is they breathe but at this point, she's taken directly into whatever weird atmosphere they breathe. And um, we see that the gravity is different. Her hair is kind of doing this cool floaty thing. She's kind of coughing a little bit, maybe. Um, but she can breathe. Um, so, I don't know. That seemed a little weird to me. I didn't really understand. This sequence is, I had a lot of questions about. Because it's it's even filmed differently than the other sequences. Mm. There is an artificiality of uh, the way she is shot, right? It's been hyper-realistic up until this point. There's an almost rotoscoped aspect. Rotoscoping is where you draw on, on celluloid. It was kind of a hip thing before computer generation came along. Uh, it's a Ralph Bakshi thing. It is a Ralph. Uh, very good. Yes. The mm-hmm. the uh, uh, Wizards and the original Lord of the Rings, etc., etc. Um, uh, cool World, for those of us mm-hmm. who remember Cool World. Mm-hmm. Uh, but th- there's, a, there's a weird artificiality to this part of it. It wasn't obvious to me that she was actually with them or if she was having if she was mentally with them, but not physically with them, if she was in, I just, it seemed it was, it was filmed very differently than the rest. That's all. That's all I can say that made me question exactly what was going on. She was clearly communing with them in a way she hadn't been able to in the mode where she's on the far side of the wall of transparent, whatever, but you know, and it's represented that she's with them. Um, But there was also, there was the bit where like she's moving her arm around and it creates a circle with, 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 pictographs on it i didn't understand how that was supposed to be working either yeah yeah it's like they're emitting this you know squid ink uh and she is somehow using it to form words in their language yeah so i don't know if she was supposed to be telepathically linked with them or whatever but she has basically a pretty clear and unambiguous conversation with them right yeah it's like the first time anybody just has what you or i the kind of conversation you and i are having right now it's the first time anybody has a conversation with them like yeah that. yeah although you know it's still in in written language so um right you know it's a little bit maybe more more similar to um you know to two people sitting next to each other on the couch and texting each other um or sure. you know, sending each other uh you know cat gifts or whatever um right. not that i would ever do that um so and, uh, and the movie just starts running subtitles, right? Yeah. So it yeah. just it, it just switches to a subtitle mode mm-hmm. where she's reading it and we're 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 reading what she reads and so on and so forth. Yeah, yeah, and it is the first like the first and pretty much only time that we see subtitles uh, in in the film, which is kind of interesting. Um, but yeah, it communicates that she is she knows what they're talking about. They understand her. Um, so we learn, of course, that um, as you mentioned earlier, that Abbott has died and that uh they're trying to to emphasize to her that that she has a weapon 
that she needs to use. Um, or at least that's how, through the subtitles, how she is interpreting it. Um, that she has a weapon. And they're doing this because they want to help humanity. They say, we help humanity. And in 3,000 years, we need humanity's help. Which is great. I just love that. Yeah. You're like, what? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but no, that's super That's super great, right? Um, so they're thinking about a need that they're going to have in 3,000 years, uh, which just gives you another idea of how different their thinking is right, than ours. Yeah, certainly. We, we, um, we, can't, we can't deal with threats that are going to be happening 100 years from now, let alone 3,000 years from now. <laughs> certainly. Um, yeah, that, that line actually reminded me of this, uh, this really uh, – talk about uh, consuming media long before one needs to. Um, when I was probably far too young, I watched this um, animated French sci-fi movie called Gandahar – um, okay. which, is, which is also known as, uh, I think, Lightyear. And there's a there's a prophecy in that movie oh, that's, yeah. you know, it's, it says something like, you know, a thousand years ago, such and such thing happened. And then a thousand years from now, um, this thing is going to happen. And so you need to prepare for it. Um, and uh, it's a beautiful, beautiful movie. Um, definitely watched it way, way too young. Um, but uh, it, it really stuck with me. Um, and it's kind of neat to see something like that happening here. Very cool. So at this at this point now, we learn. You know, this is pretty obvious, right? If you if you haven't caught on at this point that the aliens interpret time differently, like it becomes. I think it becomes fairly obvious. Yeah, this is the point where they uh, swat you on the nose with the newspaper. Yeah, yeah. They're like, okay, like you might have figured this out by yourself by now, um, but this is the time. And because immediately after this, we see. We see another one of these like pseudo flashbacks, and and she asks, "Who is this child?" So at this point, okay, now the audience there, knows. Now there's a, a record, okay. a, a record scratch. Like, wait a minute, what? Yeah, yep. Um, so this happens again. Why? I think this is while she's still you know, in their kind of alien fog zone, and she asks, "Who's the child?" And they say, "Well, Louise sees the future. Uh, your weapon opens the time." And then we just get even more, even more of these, um, you know, future visions. We learn more about our child. We see, you know, all kinds of cool interactions that they have um, sort of over the span of their life. Um, it reminds me a little bit of a milder version of the temporal singularity at the end of the movie Primer, right? Where, like, mm-hmm. everything time-wise kind of comes together in a in a mad crescendo, right? There's it's, it's, not quite, it's not quite that chaotic, but a lot happens in a short amount of time. Yeah. And one of the things that, that we notice at this point, uh, if, if as the audience we haven't already, is that in all of these visions of uh, Dr. Banks and her daughter, it's just the two of them. Um, yep. We, we never, I think for the most father, of these... The father is alluded to early and a conversation is kind of foreshortened. Mm-hmm. Uh, about daddy and so it's mm-hmm. not clear what the deal is with daddy yeah and so it kind of builds up a little bit through these kind of visions that are piling on of you know maybe a disagreement and then finally we get to um hannah asks her um you know are you gonna are you gonna leave me like like daddy did and she says no no like daddy didn't didn't leave um like i i did something bad and he left, like he left me, basically, not you. 
and this is this is like to me this is like where like the whole story hangs off of this particular scene which is that she you know she knows the entire life of her of her child and she knows that hannah is going to die young and she told her husband this she told um jeremy renner uh that this is going to happen we don't actually know it's Jan- Jeremy Renner at this point, but those of us in the audience who've been paying it, attention it became, probably assume it's yeah. Jeremy Renner. Yeah. But yeah. Um, and his response was that she made the wrong choice, um, which is like, whoa, right? That's this is this is the whole thing, right? This is the like she chose, and we and we'll we'll, we'll see this at the at the end of the movie. Um, she chose knowing that her her child would would die at a young age um she chose to not change anything about that um to wait go she said it. she said that was the wrong choice i don't remember her he, saying that was the wrong he choice. he said um what, what she described to hannah was um you know daddy thought i made the wrong choice daddy thought i made the wrong choice yeah yeah yeah, yeah. right and so yeah and so he couldn't he couldn't deal with it right he couldn't get with basically the incredible sacrifice that she was having to make, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, for 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 this for the story to play out the way it was going to play out, this thing had to happen. And there's this uh, there's this conversation about that's out there about predeterminism, and you know, uh, is it that once you know how things are going to go, that influences you to make those decisions, right? Uh, you make those decisions because you know the future, right? Not in spite of of knowing the future. Um, so this really weird conversation about if you could somehow know the future, you know, I mean, we don't know at all how cause and effect, when cause and effect doesn't work the way we're used to, we, we don't know how the human brain would work. But she made this decision and Jeremy Renner uh, couldn't bear the fact that she made this decision knowing that this wonderful daughter of theirs was going to die. And let me just tell you, so uh, people who've listened to the previous podcasts know that Tim and I have talked briefly about I used to have a huge problem watching movies where kids got hurt. And it was because my kids were little and my kids are the center of my universe. They're the most amazing people I've ever known in my life. And the thought that someday they will pass away. Please, 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 dear God, let me go before they do. Um, so, you know, the idea that they were small and helpless and the world is a weird place. Uh, made it that I didn't enjoy watching any films where anybody got hurt. But maybe three or four years ago, you know, probably, you know, my son graduated from high school. I now have these two kids that are incredibly capable. They're each more capable than I am in some ways. And I'm like, okay, okay, I can watch pieces of art that have kids getting hurt um, because I don't have to automatically relate it to my kids. And so thank goodness, right? Thank goodness that I could watch this film. Because this is not a film I could have watched five years ago. Um, it would have been too, uh, it would have been too emotionally crushing to me to see this little girl. Cause they really, they don't sugarcoat the fact that she's a wonderful person. You know, she's a, she's a clever little girl full of really interesting ideas. And her mom knows when she conceives her that her daughter is going to die a horrible death 12 years later. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's like, uh, and yeah, and you have to wonder, I guess maybe as uh, just sort of seeing this from the outside is, you know, does it's implied that he, you know he doesn't have this ability 
to see the right. future, right? He's right. you know even even through all this time that he spent working with her in the translation, um, you know he still doesn't have whatever it takes um, to be able to understand this language, and then get this view of time that she has, um, and so his all that he knows, right, is is what she is telling him, right. um, and and he doesn't have all of like the actual, you know forward flashbacks or whatever you want to call them of like experiencing these things and knowing that like there's going to be all these amazing experiences you know, coming up along the way you know this this fracture in human civilization that would occur it's shown that she's written a book on translating uh it was again heptapod yeah translating yeah. heptapod he- hept- heptapod b i think is what it's called heptapod a is the is the is the uh, spoken language, and I think heptapod B is the written language. So it's like translating heptapod B. And, you know, it, it would be a fracture if, if let's say, 10% of the human population could was unbound by time. It could see forwards and, and backwards through time, you know, sort of Dr. Manhattan style uh, without the omnipotence. Uh, I mean, it would fracture civilization kind of like the only comparable fracture of civilization I can think of is childhood's end, Right where a, a generation of humans are born all of a sudden that have nothing to do with the previous generation, no commonality in communication or goals or anything like that, right? But it's a, it's a fundamental unraveling of 30,000 years of, uh, you know, neol- uh, what's, the, what's the revolution where you had agriculture, right? Neolithic, Neolithic revolution? I don't know. Anyhow, um, so it would be that profound of a change, right? If even 10% of the population, upon learning heptapod B, was able to unbind themselves from time the way that Amy Adams has, right? So that's, yeah. that's, a, that's a thing out there, right? This change, I mean, and this is what the heptapods want, right? They're, they're, they're trying to instill this change because they're going to need our help in 3,000 years, right? They're going to need humans that can be unbound by time, right? That the Amy Adamses of the world uh, are going to slowly crowd out the Jeremy Renners of the world, right? And that eventually you have people that everybody can can see forwards and backwards through time. And then human, humanity won't look anything like it does today in the same way that the children in Childhood's End don't look anything like the humans that beget them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, so, yeah, like, like you say, you know, she, she's, she's remembering the future at this point. Um, she is... Uh, envisioning the book that she's going to write um and it's this i don't know i thought it was actually kind of a really cute way to tell the story uh is like she's going to learn how to translate uh the heptapod language and um so she just envisions herself reading the book that she's going to write in the future um it's reminding me of some other movie or some other story where something like that happens and I, i could not quite well, there's, the Lathe of Heaven has some scenes like that where somebody needs something to happen, so they dream it. Yeah, right? and they yeah. and they do and they do prescriptive dreaming because he can change reality by his dreams. So it's a it's a little bit like that. Yeah, but. something. Yeah, something like that. Um, and okay, so that gives her the translation, and uh, somehow we learn that uh, General Shang, uh, the Sima character, has done something similar to this. So she has another f- sort of future flashback where she meets the general at this like great get together of all of the people who have solved the mystery of of the alien language sometime and in the future. And by the way, and by the way, I don't know what this means to the story, but one of the flags hanging has a heptapod circle with language with a with a with something on it. 
I don't know what that means given how the movie ends, but it almost makes me think that there's there's heptapods, there's more heptapods on Earth. Because why would there yeah. why would there be a flag hanging at a UN function that had a heptapod symbol on it? But yeah. Like, yeah, no, I guess, yeah, you're right. I guess I sort of read that as a, like a banner of like, like, woohoo, we translated everything. Um, but, it's but hanging yeah, up there the same like, way as all the national banners. Yeah, yeah weird. Um, yep. So, um, yeah, there's this amazing scene, right? Uh, just unbelievable scene where he, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll let you tee it up. Um, oh, yeah, sure. Yeah, so she, you know. Uh, General Chang uh, kind of comes up and, and says, you know, the only reason I'm here is to talk to you. And he said, you know, you, you're the reason why we did this. You called me on my private cell phone. And she's like, I, I called you on your private cell phone. Um, What's your like, cell yeah. phone number? <laughs> he's like, well, yeah, here's the number that you called me on. Um, and so I, I think, yeah, it's not, it's not super explicit um, that, that like he, also has this ability um but it's kind of wonder if he's in on it kind of yeah it's kind of communicated like they're both in on the secret and and uh you know he says you know that you 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 called me to stop the attack and what you what you told me was my wife's dying words and she's like i told you your wife's dying words um (laughs) and so he sort of leans in and, and and recites them and there's not uh there's not actually uh, a subtitle for this one, right? Um, and so I, lo- I looked it up online, and uh, what what her dying words were was, um, "War doesn't make winners, only widows." Right. Um, which you know kind of makes sense in the context of <laughs> the conversation. Well, it, it, and it also is in the context of she has a conversation with her daughter, which is her daughter asks her, "What do you call it when?" Uh, an outcome isn't isn't balanced that you don't have both winners and losers uh, in an outcome, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's non-zero sum, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but that's basically another way to say uh, to say that same thing, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not it's not about winners and losers. So she um, goes and so so she goes and she goes and she does this. Yeah, um, and you know, as a very very excellent scene i think of of you know sneaking a satellite phone away from a cia agent um which is maybe somewhat questionable um uh, i don't <laughs> you know. know you know everybody's dude, they're tearing down camp they're getting yeah. ready to leave lots of dude, lots dude of stuff just leaves is going his phone. on yeah. yeah just leaves his phone on the table why not um we've all done that um now my our... phone is password protected i don't know about yours but oh yeah that's fine yeah that's fine yeah that's uh you know um, this was before iPhones, maybe. Wait, no. Because they made a big Definitely deal, not. by the way, at the beginning of the movie. They made a big deal about taking away everybody's cell phone when they got mm-hmm. to the base. Mm-hmm. So there should not be phones lying around. But whatever. Yeah. That's fine. Yeah. But yeah, this guy's got a set phone. Uh, it's able to call direct to China because, of course, um, and they stand down and pretty much like contemporaneous with this, all of the spaceships disappear. Right. Like like almost evaporate, right? They're sitting yeah. they're sitting where they are, and they slowly, for lack of a better word, evaporate. Yeah, and again, I think to me, it 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 all kind of like fits together into this sort of like advanced technology that we don't understand. Um, you don't see them like they don't fly out of the atmosphere. Uh, they don't even like teleport, right? There's no like you know Star Trek kind of thing. 
you don't even get what 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 could potentially happen if you know if the spacecraft just sort of disappeared like like actually vanished from our atmosphere which is that they would leave a vacuum behind and then the atmosphere would collapse where the vacuum was and you'd probably get like a sonic boom or something like that but right. it's none of that you get this beautiful like fog effect and it's just just gone and then they're gone mm-hmm. so but and they've mentioned earlier on that the Tsima character they call him what the the there's a term for it because he like leads up the other four four of them will follow him I can't remember the term they use for it, but um, it's implied that he leads sort of the the uh, oh, totalitarian sort of responses. And so when he opens up, they he restores communication with the other 11, and then the four that follow him restore communication, and then the Australians restore communication, etc., etc., etc. And so, yeah, this 12th of, assumably, this 12th of the information that was given to the American team is combined with the other 11 parts of information. And, you know, in, in aggregate, we have this tome of how to, of how to communicate in, in uh, Heptapod B. And you, right. And you have to wonder, you know, how much, how much of it is the, like on the, on the face of it, it's, you have to get along in order to make this work. And how much of it is like you actually do need to communicate through this new method that we've taught you in order to make sure that it works, right? Which is sort of like maybe it's a subtle difference, um, but like one to me is more of like the sci-fi trope of of we just like you know we're here to reunite humanity or we're here to stop a you know nuclear Armageddon or whatever, right. uh, and and the other one is more of like. You know, from a from an engineering perspective, I look at this and I go, okay, we have a new tool. We need we need to validate the tool. We need to uh, we test need you to... out on this tool, right? You, yeah, have, you have to get yeah. checked out on this tool. Yeah, we need to we need to like, you know, the 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 requirement for this new tool that we have given you is that you need to be able to communicate with someone through time, and so in order to like verify that you meet this requirement, go and communicate through time. Uh, with you know anyone else in the world, and uh, and then she does it, and then they're like, all right, cool, we're we're out. Yep, you, you clearly know enough to to decipher this book. We've done our bit. We'll be back in three thousand years. Now that is, see, I, I mentioned before, I thought there were two uh, climaxes to the film because I think that is the conventional climax of the film. But I think that her decision, I mentioned earlier that I thought that. That she, they had had sort of comradeship and uh, support for each other. I think that the second climax of the film was her choosing to embark on the path of a romantic relationship with him, which occurs five minutes later, because <laughs> it's going to set about the circumstances where her daughter is going to die. It is, okay, I now understand what I have to do. This path that I'm on will be successful. Right. I understand mm-hmm. why I'm on this path, what it means to be on this path. I'm ready to make this sacrifice, this horrible, 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 horrible sacrifice. And yeah, yeah. And the way that the scene itself uh, that you're describing kind of plays out is like, it's a little sappy. Um, you know, like Jeremy Renner throws off this line of like, you know, I was looking up to the stars, but really, you know, I, oh, you know, it was, it was working with you that, you know, gave me whatever I needed here. Um, but it like, but it works, right? It it sets her up for that moment um, of you know she's like she's like so, 
if you could see the future, would you do anything different? And he's like, well, I would just talk about my emotions more. Um, and here's one that I have right now. <laughs> and she's like, okay, what do I do with this? Yeah, I just think it's a super conscious, eyes open decision of hers. Like, it, in in some ways, it reminds me of the path that Leto the Second takes in Children of Dune, where he's like, okay, uh, this path, this golden path that I'm on, is going to involve thousands of years of pain and isolation from the rest of humanity, but it's going to result in this outcome that I think the universe needs, and I'm willing to take on this pain. And that's basically what she agrees to do, right? For the sake of her species and the heptopods and everybody, she's got to do this thing that is almost un- unfathomably difficult, right? The idea to have a child and love that child, knowing for sure. I mean, it it, it gets at how we all approach risk and how we all approach parenting, right? You have two kids, mm-hmm, you, mm-hmm. You, you know. Um, the, the very act of having a child opens you up to a kind of risk that getting married doesn't touch, right? Getting married doesn't in- invoke one one hundredth the the emotional risk that having a child does, and and she just is gonna see that realized in a way that nobody, no parent ever has before when considering having a kid. Yeah, and it's it's this uh, you know like we were talking about before. It's like you know what what could you what would you do, right? Would you do anything differently? Um, and you know, especially knowing all of these things that are going to happen, um, and, and she, they explained you know, earlier that the disease is utterly incurable, right? There's yeah. no, uh, there's nothing anybody can do to prevent it or treat it. Yeah, unstoppable is the is the word that that she uses, um, which she then you know turns around and and says like, well, well, Hannah, you're unstoppable, um, which is like, which is adorable, but it's also not true, right? right. Like, and yeah. she knows it's not true as she says it. Right. Right. And by the way, if you're wondering, does she have to have this kid for the story to work? She does, because some of the things her daughter says and do as part of her jumping around in time help her figure out what's going on with the heptopods. So because there's a scene where her daughter has made a picture and uh, made some uh, little clay art and she realizes that her daughter is describing what happened in the in the heptopod vehicle. So there's and it's an aha moment. Mm hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's a little bit of the the thing that you get in in uh, there was certainly a, a long run of TV shows in in the probably the two thousands and the twenty tens where you have the like you know the smart person who's like who sees a word or hears a phrase that like unlocks the answer to something. Um, you see it on you know numbers and on house MD and and all kinds of things. Um, and and in this case, but in this case, it, it again I think it works. I think it works great. Um, because it all kind of fits in with with this world that they've built, um, mm-hmm. is that the the flashbacks of the future are the things that are helping her solve the problem. That you get a sense of the essential inevitability of what's happening. It's really not about determinism and free will the way so many discussions of time travel are. Right? It's just taken. Uh, I, I shouldn't say it's taken for granted because she makes a conscious decision near the end. So I guess it's about coming to terms with what you need to know, what you need, what what you realize you need to do, right? And and these people who can jump around in time have an understanding of what they need to do, far different than you know than you or I do. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that's it. That's the movie. And right? that's the movie. Yeah. Um, and we end with this uh, again, more beautiful, beautiful music. Um, just throughout the whole thing. 
Um, I do have to close one open uh, thread from early in the conversation. Her house is on the Lake of Two Mountains, Lac de Deux Montagnes, uh, which is the delta of the Ottawa River where it comes into the St. Lawrence River. Mm. Uh, so it is at the uh, Quebec, uh, Ontario border near Montreal. So there you have it. That's beautiful. Yeah, uh, I've, I've only been to Quebec once in my life has been, uh, gosh, at least 20 years. Um, and I just remember, yeah, it's just a gorgeous, gorgeous uh, place to visit. Need to go back there. So shall we, uh, shall we talk about how this film, uh, how this film did in our scoring system? Are Let's we, do. Are we ready? All right. Yeah. Science. Um, so, you know, in the end, I think there's actually not a whole heck of a lot of science in this movie. Um, but what we, what we do see, I think, is pretty good. Um, you know, the way that the, you know, we, we get some time with the the doctor on scene, um, treating treating these folks, giving them antibiotics and vaccinations and whatever else. Um, and then what, you know, I'm not a linguist. Uh, so what, what we do here um, on the linguist side, it, you know, it fits with, you know, how you do science, right? So, um, I think on our scale of one to ten, I'm gonna I'm just gonna give this a solid nine on the science. Well, it's actually we use a percent, right? We normalize. Percent, that's right. We, we use a unit vector, so it's zero yeah. to one hundred percent. Zero to one hundred percent. So we're gonna go. Uh, what I say? We'll, we'll say it a ninety percent. Ninety percent. All right. Yeah. I would go even higher. I think there is a lot of science in this. I think it's just not the science. It's not physics and mechanical engineering mostly, like you and I are used to. But there's a lot of what I think of as process science, like how scientists respond to things, how government types respond to things. I think they got all that uh, pretty pretty well. I think that um, as a, somebody who's in government, uh, as my as my side hustle, um, if I could I could say it that way about elected office, um, I think that the uh, I think they got all that stuff right about how decisions are made and, and leadership is done. So I'm actually going to go higher. I'm going to go 95%. Okay. Um, I thought, I thought it was really good that way. It didn't. Now the science it had, it wasn't, it wasn't, you know, like I said, xenobiology and astrophysics and stuff like that. Right. It wasn't, it wasn't trying to be an interstellar. Um, but yeah, I, I thought it got its science really, 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 really right. All right. Fiction. So this is a beautiful movie. Um, I mean, just the way the way the story is told, um, the way that the that the reveal, the twist, is kind of worked in, um, and uh, you know, as a as a just a storytelling uh, process, I think it's fantastic. I think the way um, too, just just the way that Amy Adams's character is is built. Uh, and the way that she is represented and, and makes her decisions, I think, is, is also just, just amazing. Um, so I'm going to, uh, story-wise, uh, 95%. Nine, 95%. Okay. Yeah. I, we're, 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 we're taking opposite positions from each other from uh, these two so far, because I'm going to go with 90%. And the reason I'm going with 90% is that, first of all, Amy Adams is incredible. So her career is just amazing from Junebug through one of the movies that I actually thought was one of the most difficult parts to pull off successfully, Enchanted. Um, she was she did a nice job in Charlie Wilson's War, which is not a huge role. Um, some of her biggest things recently I haven't seen, but just just what a great actress. I thought she was really good in Man of Steel as Lois Lane. They haven't really done much with her since then. But uh, 
so I, her character was super well put together and interesting. I don't feel like a lot of the other characters were necessarily as well done. I don't think the Jeremy Renner character, and I get he plays a certain kind of character, and you have to be okay with her not trusting him to know the information about their daughter at the end, right? If he was mm. co-lead with her, you might have a hard time with her decisions. But I just, I didn't feel that the other characters were maybe as well put together. Hers was hers was basically perfect. The rest of them were, were fine. Um, but I'm, so I'm still giving you 90%. So yeah. uh, the collective is 93% on both okay. sides okay. so far. Okay. How about as a film? Yeah. Um, yeah. And I guess as you, uh, yeah, as you described that, like it's, uh, it's an interesting contrast to sort of the standard setup where you have a, you know, a male lead where you understand, you know, his motivations and, and kind of, you know, he's a fully fleshed out character. And then his romantic female interest uh, is basically a foil. Um, And I think in this case, the genders have flipped, um, right? Jeremy Renner is, I think what you've just described is, is he's kind of just basically a foil um, for Amy Adams. Um, And, you know, it works. Um, so, yeah, yes. usually the romantic side kick. They're a foil. They're a motivation, or they're a prize. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah, and in this case, uh, yeah, I think he's he's mostly a foil in this case. Um, right. But uh, okay, so 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 film. So as a work of film, um, and you have an advantage in this because you read the book or the short story. I have read I have the not. short story, um, and um, but again, so you, I'm can, sort of, you, you can know, compare the effectiveness. As a film versus its effectiveness as a written story is just where I, where it's going with that. Yeah, and 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 this is where you know the 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 sparse but like amazing visual effects that we see that I've been describing are you know they're just wonderful. Uh, they they take advantage of the film medium. Um, you know the the way that they portray the aliens, the way that the um, the spacecraft are sort of like slowly revealed through this visual storytelling. Uh, it's all it's all done just like really well and uh if we haven't said enough about not just the soundtrack but also just the sound design of this film um because again it is a little bit about language but but just the way that the um the language is represented uh when it's uh when it's coming through in the sound design is just fantastic um when i watched this uh yesterday on the airplane i was watching it uh with with headphones on with really good headphones and just being immersed in that was just just amazing um so let's see translate that to a percentage um gosh i'm gonna have to go with 94 i'm gonna go 94 a curiously specific number but okay um yeah i i think this film was kubrickian in its use of silences and its use of visual simplicity, but exquisite timing. Just unbelievably precise visual and audit- auditory timing. I agree with you. The sound design in this film was amazing. Uh, I think that there were periods of activity uh, where things on the screen got very visually complicated, uh, but not but not a lot of that. And so, yeah, I think it was a pretty... Pretty close to the flawless film. I'm just going to say 96% for uh, lack of a different number. And so we can we can have our combined score be, be 95% there you on go. that one. So we're at 93%, 95, 93%, and 95%. So one of the things 
it's very interesting to me to look to Denis Villeneuve's track record as a director because this film, it, we you know we give it a ninety five percent. His filmmaking is has some unevenness to it. I think I think Sicario was a masterful film as well. Uh, Blade Runner twenty forty nine is problematic in a, in a number of ways, and I think at some point I'm not suggesting we do Blade Runner twenty forty nine next, um, but I think we should do Blade Runner twenty forty nine sometime in the near future because uh, it's a certainly a beautiful film. But boy, it has its detractors. I know people that just mm-hmm. hate that movie, right? Mm-hmm. And Enemy is considered one of the hardest movies to understand of any movie of the last 20 years, right? It's an extremely challenging film. We could do that at some point, but I don't want that to be the next okay. one either. It's going on the list. I put it on All the right. list. So let's talk about your list. Um, you have a list that you've compiled because we have fans of the podcast that have thoughts on things that we should see. I have an idea for our next movie, but I want to hear if you have anything that you feel jumps out at you from our list. Uh, I do, actually don't have a strong opinion. We've got a pretty good backlog. Um, and as I was looking at this right before we started recording and thinking um, the last two movies I have, I have loved um both annihilation and arrival uh and it might be fun to do one that we can kind of pick at a little bit more uh, for our next one you mean um, that that we both think has uh challenges to it uh, certainly yeah yeah so a movie that i think is it has very high aims but i i think um has challenges re- reaching uh Having its reach meet its grasp. How does that work? Having your grasp meet your reach, I guess, would be the awkward way of saying it, is Interstellar, the Christopher Nolan film. Uh, I wrote an entire essay about what I didn't like about that film, uh, similar to the essay that I wrote about... uh, What was the one that we watched a couple times ago? Ad Astra. Ad Astra, right. So I wrote an entire essay about what I didn't like about Interstellar, and you have not seen Interstellar yet. I have not. Similar to my viewing of, of Ad Astra, um, I think it, it fits within uh, a series of films that came, I came out around the same time where I looked at them and I thought, you know what, this is going to try too hard. And it turns out, in that case, I was right. Um, <laughs> All right, so let's, so. Do, let's do Interstellar. But I want to ask, this is a chance to appeal directly to our listeners. Um, at some point, I want to do a film from the early days of science fiction, and I think of the early days of science fiction as the 1950s. So I have five films from the 1950s that I consider seminal early science fiction works. So Day the, Earth's, the Day the Earth Stood Still from 1951, When Worlds Collide from 1951, War of the Worlds from 1953, This Island Earth from 1955, and Forbidden Planet from 1956. So one of the things I'd like to ask is have our listeners... Uh, if you have opinions on this, get a, get a hold of Tim or I and let us know which of those films. We're, we're going to do Interstellar next. But after that, I, I would really like to consider doing one of these early era films because everything we've been doing lately has been stuff that's come out like in the last 10 years, basically. Right. 
And uh, yes, I can I can already anticipate what the vote from uh, my household will be, which was probably uh, for This Island Earth, uh, which was also featured in uh, the Mystery Science Theater 3000 of the movie. It was. It was. <laughs> um, I, 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 have a, I have one that I believe will be uh, most likely picked by, by our fans, but we'll see. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not it's not the silent earth but that's okay uh all right well i think that's it for to for tonight thank you to all of our listeners yeah thank you for tuning in and uh if you have listened to this entire thing without watching uh arrival yet um that was your choice uh that you have to live with now but you should still go and watch the film because uh, it's amazing and it's beautiful and uh, as you can tell we both loved it yeah keep watching science fiction films Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Monty Hall Effect. People ask us, does Monty Hall know about the Monty Hall Effect? Well, he knew about the cognitive theory, but as to the podcast, Monty's been gone since 2017. So no. Our musical themes, as always, were written and performed by our good friend Guy Ellis. If you have any thoughts, feedback, or questions about the podcast, you can contact us or find out more about us at the Monty Hall Effect podcast page on Buzzsprout. Thanks, and keep watching science fiction films.